welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to do something with himself after his comprehensive exams. This is my fourth episode in a mini-series on the history of coal. In the first episode, we discussed the deep history of coal, how coal was formed in the Carboniferous era as the result of big trees crashing in massive swamps and being covered up by sediment. In episode two, we talked about pre-industrial uses of coal, particularly the story of how in Britain, a lot of coal was on the surface and close to navigable waterways, and so it was used uh, in times of Darth for heating houses and for some industrial uses. In episode three, we turned to the 18th century. I gave a perhaps too long overview of what life in the 18th century was like in Britain, And we discussed how coal was mined, how coal remained cheap for the entire century. Now I'm going to turn to a series of important developments in coal use. Over the 18th century, coal began to change the world. And to do this, it needed workers and inventors and industrialists who started to figure out how to use coal to do work how to use coal to make pottery, how to use coal to pump mines, how to use coal to drive machines, how to use coal to make threads to weave fabric together, how to use coal finally to move people across land and across oceans. We call this the Industrial Revolution. When you've learned about it before, it's probably been as a story of inventions, as a wave of gadgets that swept over England. You hear about the spinning jenny and the steam engine and the railway. The story that I tell today is not that story of inventions. I want to look at this story from the perspective of coal. And today we will hear about genius inventions, but we're also going to hear from environmental actors that might not be included in the usual story of the Industrial Revolution. We're going to be hearing today from marine clams, from copper, and from different kinds of iron ore. So why iron? Why start the story of the Industrial Revolution with iron when it's usually a story of, you know, cotton spinning and inventions? Well, first, there's an environmental aspect to this. Cheap iron is at the center, at the foundation of all of the other changes of the Industrial Revolution. Without good cheap iron and cheap coal, you don't have the infrastructure in place to make the steam engines that drove the cotton factories that allowed capital to increase and so on and so forth. Without cheap iron, you would not have uh, the ability to build railways that crossed the countries that allowed bulk goods to lower in price, thus allowing a division of labor across countries and then across the world. Without cheap iron, you wouldn't get the infrastructure developments that you would get in the later 19th century that opened up new places and new markets to the global economy. But iron is also important because in looking at iron, we can see most clearly the energy constraints of the pre-modern world and how massively the turn towards fossil energy opened up new vistas of growth. So to understand that, we need to think about where iron comes from. 
Now, you know this. Iron comes from the ground. It is mined out of the earth in iron ore and little bits of reddish clumps of dirt. But how you get that dirt and turn it into a metal is through heating it again and again and again to incredibly hot temperatures. And so for this reason, iron industries are actually an energy industry. Before people turned to coal to heat iron, iron industries were located where there was lots of fuel. They were located in forests. Now, to make iron, people wouldn't just burn wood. They would uh, prepare wood in a special way, uh, which we know as charcoal. Now, charcoal is wood that's been heated through so that a lot of the impurities boil away, and it can burn at a much higher temperature. And it takes a lot of charcoal to make iron, about a ton of charcoal to make a ton of pig iron, and then about a ton and a half more to make a ton of wrought iron. And for this reason, iron industries were usually located away from cities, in forests, where there was a lot of wood to go around. And it means that iron industries were often located in countries that had really low population densities. The 18th century big, gigantic goliaths in the iron industry were Sweden and Russia, both countries that had massive hinterlands with lots of forests to go around, enough wood for everyone. But this also meant that iron industries were, by necessity, scattered. They were not gathered together because if they were gathered together, they would quickly go through all of the energy reserves. Now, this is, of course, inefficient. And so as coal use grew in 17th century Britain, people really strove to be able to use coal to make iron. And what's even more tantalizing is when you're digging through the rock formations to get to coal, you often pass through layers and layers of iron ore. Sometimes they're even interwoven, like a massive, you know, metallurgical peanut butter and jelly sandwich. But it was difficult to make iron out of coal. Because coal's not like charcoal. Coal has a lot of weird stuff in it. It burns black with black sooty smoke, and this can really damage the iron that it's burnt with. It was in the 18th century that after a lot of tinkering, people figured out how to make iron with coal. And to understand how that happened, we're going to need to take a deep dive into how iron's actually made and the differences between the different kinds of iron that were produced in the 18th century. So iron isn't just iron, it's usually an alloy of the element iron and some other elements that are present in it. And different alloys of iron have massively different qualities that really determine their use in the world. So we're going to talk about three different kinds of iron throughout the program, and so it's important to be able to distinguish between them. The first is called pig iron, or cast iron. This is iron that has a relatively high carbon content. It's easier to make, but it's brittle. In the terms of the time, it's cold short. It doesn't bend, it snaps. And so you couldn't really beat it with a hammer to make it into stuff. Instead, you had to pour it into a cast to make it into the shape that you wanted. That's why it's called cast iron. 
When the iron was meant to be shipped off to another place to be forged, they would often pour it into the sand that would make them look like little pigs, which is why it's called pig iron. Now, most iron that was made in Britain started out as pig iron or cast iron, and you can still probably find some cast iron in your house. If you look in your kitchen, you might find a nice big cast iron pot. Now, cast iron is great for a lot of stuff, but it's not especially useful if you want fine, delicate work. For that, you need to be able to hit the iron so you're able to, you know, forge it into particular shapes. And for that, you need wrought or worked iron. Wrought iron is pig iron that's been worked in a forge, which means that you heat it up and you beat it a ton. And as you beat it, you literally work out some of the carbon. This reduced carbon content makes the iron more malleable. It allows you to make it into shapes like pins and nails and links on a chain. There was more pig iron and it was cheaper, and there was less wrought iron and it was more expensive, in part because it demanded so much more energy. Now, in between wrought iron and pig iron in terms of carbon content, there is a really small sweet spot. This is iron that is strong and malleable and often resistant to tarnishing. This is iron that we call steel. Now, in our century that we're talking about today, steel doesn't get the same amount of technological development as it does in the 19th century, but hold it into your mind because we will be returning to it again in a later podcast. And today, because of the wide availability of steel, it's really likely that when you look through your kitchen cabinet, most of the stuff that you have is made of steel. You're really unlikely actually to have much wrought iron in your house at all. So first, let's talk about how people made cast iron, which is called smelting. When you smelt Iron ore, you're basically boiling it in order to separate out the usable stuff from the slag. When people used coal to melt away the impurities from iron ore, they discovered that the iron that was produced wasn't especially good because coal has a lot of weird stuff in it. It's, you know, remember broken down trees, and so it has sulfur and bitumen and other, you know, weird tarry substances in it. And that meant for most of the 17th century and a great deal of the 18th century, people did not make iron from coal at all. They still used charcoal. The big change began in 1708 in an area called Colebrookdale in Shropshire, where a Quaker ironmaster named Abraham Darby hit upon one part of the solution. Darby didn't just use coal to make his iron. He used coked coal. The same way the charcoal makers would burn away impurities from wood to make a much cleaner and hotter burning product called charcoal, Darby burnt away impurities from the coal to make a cleaner burning fuel called coke. Darby was no great genius. He borrowed this from local brewers who would use coke to dry out the malt that they needed to make beer have that nice malty taste. 
He also needed to construct a furnace that was big enough that the iron could be heated for longer with the coke, and to figure out how to increase the temperature in that furnace by blowing through a hot blast through it, which he, you know, solved through using a bellows powered by a water wheel. Now, once Abraham Darby figured that out, you would think, hey, everything would change. Everybody all throughout Britain would suddenly switch to using coked fuel instead of expensive charcoal. What's odd is that this didn't happen. And it's been a great mystery to a lot of people who study the history of iron. And I'm going to give you one of those solutions that people have come up with. And that's that it wasn't actually cheaper to make iron from coke in the early 18th century. It required a ton of working. It required a ton of fuel. It required, you know, specially built kilns. And it just didn't pay out as much. In fact, why Abraham Darby and his uh, children and grandchildren, who are all confusingly called Abraham Darby, actually used the coke coal method was not because it provided any special cost benefits, but rather it let them get the iron ore really, really hot. And when it got really hot, the silica turned to silicone and the cast iron was able to roll really, really smoothly. And the Darbys used this to make special thin-walled uh, cast iron pots. And it was these pots that they were selling. That's the very thin-walled casings that made the Darbys iron so special. And you can see this because when the Darbys actually patented their invention, they didn't patent the use of coat coal. They didn't patent those extra large furnaces. They didn't patent the hot blast. What they patented was the sand castings that let them make the really delicate cast iron walled pots. And so think about this. Think about this. Abraham Darby in 1708 comes up with a world-changing invention, an invention that will get his name memorized by generations and generations of British schoolchildren, an invention that will get him enshrined in this very program. And he doesn't patent it. He thinks that the important thing is the sand castings. It took a lot of tinkering to get Abraham Darby's code coal method to actually pay out for iron workers all across Britain. First, the water wheel that powered the hot blast was supplemented with a steam engine. The steam engine wouldn't actually drive the bellows in the 18th century. Oddly enough, the steam engine would pump water from the bottom of the water wheel and then put it back up to the top, giving it like a little bit of a force multiplier, allowing it to work even when the water wasn't running as quickly. Next, the furnaces were made even wider, which allowed people to make even more iron, dropping prices even more. Finally, people experimented with different kinds of iron ore, because the stuff that was coming out of Colebrookdale was cold short. It wasn't good for making into wrought iron, which was really more expensive and a lot more fun to make. Finally, they settled on a particular balance of three different kinds of ores from around the country that produced iron with a low phosphorus content that was better at making wrought iron. After people settled on this in 1750, then all over Britain, people started to make wrought iron with coke. But it took, you know, 50, 60, 70 years after Abraham Darby I came up with his big invention. 
By 1785, British pig iron production was up to 61,000 tons. Ten years later, it had doubled to 120,000 tons. In 1805, it had doubled again to nearly a quarter of a million tons every year. This is a massive growth. And this didn't just allow people to make more iron. It didn't just drive the prices of iron down. It allowed people to make iron in new places. No longer were iron masters who wanted to make pig iron confined merely to forest places. No, they could get together in places like Colebrookdale where they relied on much easier to transport coal fuel. And this cheaper iron let people build new things. In 1781, the first iron bridge was made in Colebrookdale across the River Severn by Abraham Darby III. This bridge was the first of many huge infrastructure projects that iron would make possible. And the bridge, just to let you know, carried traffic until 1934. People became iron mad. Tom Paine, yes, the Tom Paine, the Tom Paine who Bob Dylan sings about, the Tom Paine who you might have read about in your American history classes, was obsessed with iron and was himself an amateur civil engineer. He daydreamed in America of building a cast iron bridge with 13 ribs to symbolize the 13 colonies of the U.S. The next innovation was how you made wrought iron out of coal. And to tell this story, we're going to be talking about a marine clam and seaweed and iron nails, as well as famous inventors. First, we need some context. By the 1780s, British people could make cast iron, pig iron, from local materials, but to make wrought iron, which they needed for tools and chains and instruments and guns, they had to rely on foreign imports, particularly from Russia and Sweden. Now, people really wanted to be able to make wrought iron at home. There was actually a proposal in the 1760s for pig iron to be made in America. Remember, it's energy hungry and America was, you know, less densely populated and so it had a lot of forests. And then the pig iron be shipped up to Britain where it would be forged into wrought iron at home. But that didn't happen. And you might wonder, why are people so worried about wrought iron? But you need wrought iron for so many useful tasks, it became a question of national security. And national security was really on everybody's mind in the 1780s because there was a little thing called the Revolutionary War. Britain was getting its ass handed to it, and it was worried about continuing its dominance over its enemies all around the world, particularly France. And so it began to scramble to figure out a way to get wrought iron continually, despite all of the geopolitical wrestling and shuffling that might occur. But the story of wrought iron and coal does not begin in ironworks. It begins instead at sea. Remember, the 18th century was a century of deep and continual war. And for Britain, a lot of that war happened on the ocean. Britain is an island, and you might think that that would make it protected, moated from all of its enemies. But no, 
The ocean is like a highway, and this meant that Britain was always vulnerable to its enemies attacking at sea. And to be defensive, to be able to protect itself, it had to develop an incredibly strong navy. The Royal Navy. It was by far the biggest organization in all of Britain. It was hugely expensive. It sucked up men and material like nothing else. In fact, in times of war, if you counted up all of the people at sea on Royal Navy ships, that was the second biggest city in the entire country. And being at sea that long was expensive. One of the problems is when you're out in the ocean for months at a time, which British ships were, your massive floating island is actually a really good source of food for a little marine bivalve called the shipworm. It's a little clam that can turn oak trees into Swiss cheese in a matter of weeks. The solution was to put a protective armor around ships' hulls of other wood planks that, when a ship sailed into a dry dock, could be easily removed and then replaced without damage to the actual ship itself. Another problem was that, you know, these ships would often get, you know, coated with seaweed that would slow them down as they moved through the oceans. In the 1780s, there was a solution that promised to cut costs dramatically and improve the condition of the ships themselves. Coppered ships did not get eaten, and coppered ships did not get fouled by seaweed, meaning that they didn't need to go into dry docks every so often to get, you know, refurbished, and because they didn't have that seaweed weighing them down, they could actually go faster, about a knot faster, which is really significant when ships were going five or six knots on average. The French complained about British copper ships. They said, the English sail much faster than us, especially now that they are sheathed in copper and we in oysters. Now, during the American Revolutionary Wars, the Royal Navy started to copper the bottoms of its ships on a really wide scale. Almost every ship was coppered uh, by 1780. But there was a problem. They discovered that after one or two years, coppered ships would just sink. You know, no explanation. They just fall into the ocean, you know, even when they didn't have anything else wrong with them. It was discovered that the paper seal in between the copper and the wood was bad, and that there was a weird electrolysis thing going on that would degrade the iron nails that held the copper plates to the ship. The solution was to take all of those coppered ships into dry docks and replace every single iron nail with a copper nail. Enter a contractor named Henry Court. Henry Court made iron goods. He made metal. His big claim to fame was that he made iron hoops for the Royal Navy. And yes, that is not very famous. He was not a very famous man. He was asked to make the copper bolts, and he invented a new machine called the rolling mill that would make them even faster. Later, he was asked to find a way to convert scrap iron, which the Navy had a lot of, into ballast, which it needed to weigh down the ships so that they would actually go through the water. In doing that, he finally cracked the puzzle of how to make wrought iron using coal. It's called the rolling and puddling method. 
and really should be called the puddling and rolling method because the puddling comes first. First, the iron is heated in a reverberatory furnace. A reverberatory furnace is a furnace that indirectly heats the iron. This is so that the iron will not be hurt by any of the sulfurous black smoke that goes around. And this iron would then melt. And it worked because the melting point of all of the impurities is lower than the melting point of the iron itself. And so you would have a worker called a puddler who would get up to this massive boiling thing of metal and rock and poke at it with a long iron rod, lifting up the solid bits of purified iron from the molten impurities that were streaming out of it. This was difficult. It was dangerous. It was hard and sweaty work. I have a contemporary description of it that shows just how difficult and mind-boggling the puddling method actually is. After the metal has been for some time in a dissolved state, an ebullition, effervescence, or such-like intestine motion takes place, during the continuous of which a bluish flame or vapor is emitted, and during the remainder of the process the operation is continued, as occasion may require, of raking, separating, stirring, and spreading the whole about in the furnace till it uses its fusibility and is flourished or brought into nature. As soon as the iron is sufficiently in nature, it is to be collected together in clumps called loops of sizes suited to the intended uses. Now, one way of thinking about this is that it's like stirring milk to get the cream out. But that's actually a dead metaphor because all our milk is homogenized and the cream does not separate from the rest of the milk. The second part of the rolling and puddling method is the rolling. And Court borrowed this from the method that he perfected in making the copper bolts to fasten on the coppering in the ships. In this, the hot iron was pushed through steam rollers, and this squeezed out the rest of the slag. The result was wrought iron that was significantly cheaper to produce. Henry Court sold this wrought iron to the Royal Navy that used it to make anchors and chains and all of the complicated interlocking ironwork that the Navy used. Swedish iron sold at about 35 and 40 pounds a ton, but English puddled iron sold at 20 to 28 pounds a ton. And it came to be that the Royal Navy would really need rolled and puddled iron for its ships. Because, of course, starting in the 1790s, Britain was involved in a war that would last for a quarter of a century and would often pit it against the entire continent. This opened up the era of cheap wrought iron. In 1788, only 32,000 tons of wrought iron were made in Britain. In 1854, when the Industrial Revolution was really kicked off, there were 2 million. So by the end of the 18th century, the code had been cracked. Iron of all kinds could be made with coal. Ironworks were now, you know, independent of forests. They could go anywhere there, where there was iron, anywhere where there was expertise. They started to gather together in, you know, what we might call industrial clusters, where iron masters would share their expertise with one another, where workers would gather together and talk tools of the trade. Iron became cheaper and better 
and more prevalent everywhere. And this flush of cheap iron allowed there to be millions of metal things made from buckles to toys to, uh, you know, little rollers to cogs to wheels and to what we might call industrial machinery. Next episode, we'll be talking about the most emblematic piece of industrial machinery of the Industrial Revolution, the steam engine. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Making a Historian. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, tell your friends, tweet about us, tweet me at at Teacher, although most times I'm now posting about politics because I'm terrified. Thank you very much to Duncan Barton, our illustrator who is making beautiful illustrations for every episode. You can find those and information about the show, the books I read, graphs and maps at historian.live. Thanks very much to Jonathan Lear, who amongst other things, has given us the music that begins and ends the show. 